Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is June 26, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to welcome in discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading of Plato's short dialogue, The Crito, and these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So today we end season three of our regularly scheduled group discussions with the Crito, in which the title character enters the prison cell, delivering to Socrates the news that his execution will occur the following day. Having been condemned to death by an Athenian jury for corrupting the city's youth with his questions, but quite unconcerned for the short time that remains in his life, Socrates responds that a dream told him his death would occur, in fact, two days hence. Like many of Socrates' friends overcome by grief that the philosopher's life is about to be cut short, Crito attempts to persuade Socrates to escape the prison, flee Athens, and take up residence in Thessaly. Crito explains that Socrates' physical safety could be easily secured by bribing the prison officials, a price which Crito and others are willing and able to pay. Socrates, however, will have none of it and accepts the justice of his impending death, even though justice was not present in either his trial or his death sentence. Knowing that Socrates has no concern for his own death, Crito tries to justify escape by explaining the shame that will befall Socrates' friends for having failed to secure his freedom and by stirring a sense of guilt for leaving his children behind as orphans. The majority of Athenians will not look kindly on those who fail to help their friends, Crito states, to which Socrates replies that the majority opinion is not worth much if it is uninformed and fails to account for what is good. Socrates goes on to explain, as he often does, that the soul is more valuable than the body, and proceeds to answer each one of Crito's points by staging a mock discussion with the laws. As he relates his discussion with the laws, Socrates brings to mind the idea of a social contract or social bargain. Socrates intends to adhere to his part of the bargain, having benefited from all that he received while he freely chose to stay in Athens. The laws, in Socrates' telling, aren't specific to that particular time, but more generally apply to the social constitution that has arisen throughout time. The laws, and therefore the social constitution, are harmed when any one person takes the question of justice into his own hands. It's not the laws in general which have done injustice to Socrates, but the men who apply the laws, a point that Socrates makes at the end of the dialogue at 54c. I'll begin today's discussion with a brief reading from 44b to 44d, in which Crito presents the subject of the majority opinion. I thought it worth mentioning, on the cover page of today's notes, the meaning of opinion as Socrates explained it in the Republic, in the discussion of the divided line of knowledge. In those passages, from 509d to 511b of the Republic, Socrates presented knowledge as a continuum in which the soul gauges the value of information in stages, beginning with belief, next proceeding to opinion, then to knowledge, and finally to wisdom. So let's hear what Socrates has to say then about the opinion of the majority, beginning at 44b. 
I'll just take a brief moment here to do a screen share. Maybe I'll just read this section. There's there's just uh, two parts for each of Crito and Socrates, but if uh, we want to have volunteer readers in the next sections, I'd uh, be happy to take volunteers for those. But I'll just read this. This is a short one. So this is from 44b to 44d. Crito starts, Too clear it seems to me, my dear Socrates, but listen to me even now and be saved. If you die, it will not be a single misfortune for me. Not only will I be deprived of a friend, the like of whom I shall never find again, but many people who do not know you or me very well will think that I could have saved you if I were willing to spend money, but that I did not care to do so. Surely there can be no worse reputation than to be thought to value money more highly than one's friends, for the majority will not believe that you yourself were not willing to leave prison while we were eager for you to do so. Socrates replies, My good Crito, why should we care so much for what the majority think? The most reasonable people, to whom one should pay more attention, will believe that things were done as they were done. Crito replies, you see, Socrates, that one must also pay attention to the opinion of the majority. Your present situation makes clear that the majority can inflict not the least but pretty well the greatest evils if one is slandered among them. Socrates says, would that the majority could inflict the greatest evils, for they would then be capable of the greatest good, and that would be fine, but now they cannot do either. They cannot make a man either wise or foolish, but they inflict things haphazardly. So I just wanted to start with that section, and I put a footnote here. Uh, Darren was kind enough to present an alternative translation of those last two sentences of Socrates. It's a little bit different. Uh, and in this alternative translation from the Oxford University Press 1999 edition, the translation is, Ah, Crito, if only the populace could inflict the worst of evils then they would also be capable of providing the greatest of goods, and a fine thing that would be. But the fact is that they can do neither. They are unable to give anyone understanding or lack of it, no matter what they do. So I wanted to start with this, and maybe to see where we go with this, um, wondering particularly about that statement that Socrates makes at the end of what I just read, that the if the majority could inflict the greatest of evils, they could also do the greatest of good. And then that idea that is that opposite present in everybody. Does that make sense what he's saying? We can consider as well in the next section, the arguments that Crito continues to employ to try to convince Socrates to escape. And so what do we think of this idea of the greatest evils and the greatest good? Is that present in all people? Dave, your thoughts? Firstly, I don't think so. I think some people can embody you know, as great an evil as you can get in humans. And similarly, other people may embody the greatest good that you can find in humans. And it's not necessarily the, tr the true that uh, the same people, if they have one, they can also have the other. I think Socrates is wrong, <laughs> you know? I mean, you may be able to find, well, I, I just think his, his psychology is incorrect, that generally speaking, people in which you can find the worst are not going to be the ones you can also find the best. So mm -hmm. I disagree with them. Mm -hmm. How about the idea of the majority in the sense that if an individual is capable of neither the greatest good or the greatest evil, is, what is he saying about the majority here? Is, is, does the majority somehow come together and determine the greatest evil and the greatest good? No, I, I think in a, in a group setting, you get more of a moderation. Mm -hmm. So it would be amazing if you got a group of people that are really good so that that group can, as a group, form really good 
opinions or laws or something. But then the, the same group, I think, would be incapable of being really bad. So again, I, I don't think the fact that there's a, a large number of people would actually help the extremes, which Socrates seems to be talking about. I think actually it would work against it. Generally speaking, if you got a group of people, a lot of the extremes balance out and you, try, you tend to get a more centralist opinion, would be my argument. Interesting. Yeah. So the idea that there's potentially moderation in the majority, I think is, yeah, that, that's an interesting opinion. Let, let's see where we go with that. So thanks for that, Dave. And we'll go to Chris. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, I, no, I, I think um, this statement from Socrates uh, is not even a philosophical statement. It's a factual mathematical statement in that when we think about outcomes as humans, we always think of outcome as binary, right? Good or evil, yeah, one or zero, where in actuality, you know, all outcomes is a distribution curve, right? So it goes from the most likely to the most unlikely uh, from left to right or up and down. And the fact that you can make a statement that one, every person has the potential to do good or evil, right? It depends on whatever your definition of good or evil is, is unchallenged, right? The, the, the potential is equal, right? Um, the only way you can say that's not the case is you take away the person's uh, agency. So if you believe the person has no agency, then, then yes, then it's, it's possible that Dave says correct, right? The person can do more good or do more evil because he or she had no agency is being told what to do. But if you believe everybody do have agency, we, we assume that's the case, then I think the potential to do either way is equal. And the more people that you have, obviously the more potential you have, right? This is a mathematical and logical deduction. <laughs> so yes, I think that, that statement to me is pretty uncontroversial. Thank you, Chris. And, and yeah, the idea of agency is an interesting one there. And I guess maybe what effect does the majority have on individual agency? Uh, so that's something that we can explore as well. Uh, Darren, your thoughts. Uh, so on this question of um, being able to inflict the greatest of good, if you can inflict the greatest of evils, I think it does matter a bit that we're talking not about an individual here in this passage, but about the group or the majority or like some kind of group dynamic, as James pointed out earlier. But the, the aspect I want to focus on is a bit different. So he says in the Oxford translation, but the fact is that they can do neither. They are un unable to give anyone understanding or lack of it, no matter what they do. And then in the uh, Hackett translation, it says they cannot make a man either wise or foolish, but they inflict things haphazardly. So like to me, I think it's significant that the most, the greatest good and the greatest evil that can be done is not about the body. So if it was about the body, I would agree with like what Dave said and um, maybe what Bentley was suggesting um, because yeah, the, the you know, there, there could be majority could, as we've seen in history, decide very evil things that can do things to people's bodies like um, concentration camps and mass exterminations. But I think the, what the passage I think clearly is referring to by the end is that uh, Socrates is talking about our soul. That's, and that's what he's going to talk more about. So it's what other people, and in this case, the majority can do to our soul, whether it has anything to say to that or whether it can 
affect anything about it or whether the soul is something of our own responsibility. I mean, if the majority were able to inflict the worst evil on our on us, which is on our soul in, in, in Plato's and Socrates view, because that's more important than the body to live a good life. The important thing is not living a life, as, as Socrates is going to say in some place in his dialogue, I don't remember where, but to live a good life. So if the majority were able to inflict the greatest of evils, in a way, it, it would make sense that they could also give us the greatest of good regarding the soul. Because if you're able to affect the soul, you, you must be an assembly of gods or something. And I don't know if it, even the god, even in Socrates and Socrates or Socrates and Plato's view would be able to affect our souls. Um, let's say hypothetically, if such a collection of beings were able to, they must be gods. So if they could do that to our souls, then they must be able to do the greatest things because they're gods. So anyway... I think there is something that makes sense about what is being said here. And I think I'm, I'm just trying to bring out, I think, what the underlying implication is. It's about the soul and what can actually mm -hmm. affect the soul. And thanks for bringing up the soul, which, you know, clearly does permeate this dialogue. And you, you'd mentioned the good. So we will get to the part where Socrates talks about the good. And that's certainly a, a key element of this dialogue. So, yeah, thanks for those. And we'll go to Tom. Tom, your thoughts. Thank you. I'm going to read from a different translation which happens to have uh, the Greek on the other side of the page. So I, I want to just bring out one thing here. Uh, Socrates says, I only wish, Crito, the people could accomplish the greatest evils that they might be able to accomplish also the greatest good things. Then all would be well. But now they can do neither of the two, for they are not able to make a man wise or foolish but they do whatever occurs to them. I think there might be a, a binary opposition here that Socrates is offering between a majority that can think coherently and therefore lead to something which is either a great evil or a great good. And on the other hand, a majority that is simply random um, when he says, but they do whatever occurs to them, the, the word there, tukosi, is, is a word that, that means by chance. And so I, I just wonder whether um, one of the things Socrates might be suggesting is, is that if you're in a society which is capable of doing good or evil, at least that society has the power to think and coherently form something where if they're just random uh you're really shit out of luck i like that interpretation that that's helpful actually in focusing on the idea of things happening haphazardly or by chance i guess i think is uh, an interesting way to focus on this um because maybe you know dave dave said that the majority can help to moderate but maybe the majority can also help to take reason out of the picture and act based on some sort of majority emotion, which is more not based on thought or reason, but just based on, you know, some particular passion of the moment, I think maybe is part of the issue. And maybe when that happens, things are haphazard. And on the other side, if the society or the majority is able to put together some rationality, whether for good or evil, uh, it suggests the possibility of a dialectic of some kind where, okay, these people are clearly doing something evil, but we can argue with them because they're doing it for some coherent, presumably, reason. Right. 
Yeah, and I think we have here the example of Socrates' trial having preceded this, and you know the majority opinion there didn't seem to be well reasoned. Uh, I think even Crito and Socrates are both admitting that it was a bit of a travesty of justice, but they're reacting differently to the outcomes. So, so thanks for that. Um, Maybe what we can do now is go and I'll read the next section that I picked out. And again, we can have, if somebody wants to volunteer for either Crito or Socrates for this, the, the Crito's part is rather longer in this one, or I can, I can do it as well. This is from 45C to 47A. And this is some of the reasons that Crito employs. And I thought this was maybe an example of Crito trying to use reverse psychology on Socrates. I guess he didn't really know what he was up against. Well, why don't I read this then? So Crito starts at 45C. Besides Socrates, I do not think that what you are doing is just. Give up your life when you can save it, and to hasten your fate as your enemies would hasten it, and indeed have hastened it in their wish to destroy you. Moreover, I think you are betraying your sons by going away and leaving them, when you could bring them up and educate them. You thus show no concern for what their fate may be. They will probably have the usual fate of orphans. Either one should not have children, or one should share with them to the end the toil of upbringing and education. You seem to me to choose the easiest path, whereas one should choose the path a good and courageous man would choose, particularly when one claims throughout one's life to care for virtue. I feel ashamed on your behalf, and on behalf of us, your friends, lest all that has happened to you be thought due to cowardice on our part. The fact that your trial came to court when it need not have done so, the handling of the trial itself, and now this absurd ending, which will be thought to have gone beyond our control through some cowardice and unmanliness on our part. Since we did not save you, or you save yourself, when it was possible and could be done if we had been of the slightest use. Consider, Socrates, whether this is not only evil, but shameful, both for you and for us. Take counsel with yourself, or rather, the time for counsel is past and the decision should have been taken, and there is no further opportunity, for this whole business must be ended tonight. If we delay now, then it will no longer be possible. It will be too late. Let me persuade you on every count, Socrates, and do not act otherwise. Socrates responds, My dear Crito, your eagerness is worth much, if it should have some right aim. If not, then the greater your keenness, the more difficult it is to deal with. We must therefore examine whether we should act in this way or not. And not only now, but at all times, I am the kind of man who listens to nothing within me but the argument that on reflection seems best to me. I cannot, now that this fate has come upon me, discard the arguments I used. They seem to me much the same. I value and respect the same principles as before. And if we have no better arguments to bring up at this moment, be sure that I shall not agree with you, not even if the power of the majority were to frighten us with more bogies, as if we were children with threats of incarcerations and executions and confiscation of property. How should we examine this matter most reasonably? Would it be by taking up your first argument about the opinions of men, when it is sound in every case that one should pay attention to some opinions, but not to others? Or was that well-spoken before the necessity to die came upon me, but now it is clear that this was said in vain for the sake of argument, that it was in truth, play, and nonsense? I am eager to examine together with you, Crito, whether this argument will appear in any way different to me in my present circumstances, or whether it remains the same whether we are to abandon it or to believe it. It was said on every occasion by those who thought they were speaking sensibly, as I have just now been speaking, that one should greatly value some people's opinions, but not others. Does that seem to you a sound statement? You, as far as a human being can tell, are exempt from the likelihood of dying tomorrow, so the present misfortune is not likely to lead you astray. Consider then, do you not think it is a sound statement that one must not value all the opinions of men, 
but some and not others, nor the opinions of all men, but those of some and not others? What do you say? Is this not well said? So there, Socrates is addressing the opinion of the majority and starting to address Crito's arguments. He will proceed to address more of Crito's arguments in his later discussion or his mock discussion with the laws. But Crito is presenting this idea of shame. Socrates, Crito knows here that Socrates does not care about his own life. So Crito is trying to use Socrates' friends and his children as means to persuade Socrates that he should flee the city. So knowing that no appeal to Socrates for his own personal safety will work, Crito tries to bring this sense of shame and guilt on Socrates. And Socrates is having really none of it. He's just saying he's sticking by his convictions. This sort of reminded me a little bit of Thomas More and Henry VIII, you know, in, in that somebody really sticks with their convictions no matter what they're facing. You know, he's, Socrates is just maintaining this kind of consistency of his philosophy and his approach to life. And it's not changing now that he's suffering a dire fate. He's happy to go with what he's believed all of his life. And I think that will maybe uh, carry through to his discussion with the laws in terms of what benefit he's drawn from the city during his life. Is there any thoughts about the arguments that Crito is trying to use here? I mean, I find that argument about Socrates' children particularly poignant. You know, like, how could a man willingly go to death and leave his children as orphans? I mean, that was a pretty, pretty tough blow, I think, that Crito landed on Socrates there. But I think we'll find Socrates later saying that even children are not important when it comes to one's soul. One has to really look after one's soul and not consider things that just exist for a period in time. Is there any other arguments that Crito might have used to persuade Socrates? So he's, you know, he's trying to say, Socrates, leave the city that you loved and spare us your friends, spare us the shame. This was an interesting section near the end. Consider then, do you not think it is a sound statement that one must not value all the opinions of men, but some and not others? So in that case, some is referring to opinions. And then he goes on in the next statement to say, nor the opinions of all men, but those are some and not others. So the some in that case refers to men. So one believes either the opinions or the men who express the opinions. We'll take Darren and then Dave. So does Dave want to go first? I I, I was going to jump in because no one was going to say anything, but go ahead. Okay, I'll go. All right. Yeah, I just I just noticed. Um. Oh, hang on. Oh, sorry. I got a new uh, message on Zoom. Looks like you're done talking. Oh, hang on. It told, okay, that's a new thing. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I, I it just popped up in front of my screen. It said it told me to lower my hand because it, it said it looked like I'm done talking. Anyway, sorry. Oh, uh, I've Zoom. never seen that before. Yeah. yeah it was like a pop up. Anyway. Okay. I, I find this entire dialogue to be actually, it was a very, this is my second time reading it through. And um, I read it first time a long time, like a few years ago. I, I actually found this to be a very um, moving dialogue. I actually found it quite emotional to read. Um, just understanding the situation that, you know, Socrates is about to die and here's one of his best friends coming to save him. And, you know, if I was in Crito's shoes, I, you know, if, and, you know, I had a special friend like Socrates who, as Crito says, you, you know, you'll never have a friend like this again. Like, why wouldn't you try to save the person, you know, and especially if there's, you know, if it's possible to. And I found Crito's pleading, um, I think that's what it is here to be like very moving too. Um, 
so I think that comes through in some of its arguments that like Crito's sort of desperation to save Socrates. But also I think another thing that I think clearly comes through in what he says, right? He says, there's no further opportunity. You know, this business must be ended tonight. So like, there's clearly an urgency in, in the situation. I mean, I think we get the sense like right off, right from the beginning and throughout. And I think that's actually significant. That's a very important thing about this dialogue and that it happens in such a, um, in a condensed period of time and with such a urgent time horizon, uh, Socrates might be executed any time now um, when the ship arrives, when the ship uh, returns. And I think it's significant because it's about whether when times become desperate and when things are urgent, whether we can maintain our personal integrity, basically, because like what, what Socrates is saying here, right, in, the, in this speech, in his like well, speech or whatever you call it here, he's saying that, you know, we, we made all those arguments before we had so many philosophical discussions. So like at this moment, when we're actually tested in life, he asked, was that, was that all just play and nonsense? All those days and years they spent discussing philosophy, that Socrates spent discussing philosophy with all those people. You know, or, you know, or maybe today's equivalent, you know, discussing philosophy at philosophy meetup groups. <laughs> um, you know, is it all just pointless? Is it just meaning, meaningless babble, play and nonsense? Was it all in vain, he says? Was it just for the sake of argument? You know, it just it just a play thing. And I think we find here that, you know, probably as we long suspected that for Socrates, this is like a serious business. Yeah, it, like it's about like he takes his thinking very seriously. It's not just a play thing and it's, it's related to a soul. So if he gives up now, it's, it's, it's like giving up, you know, giving up something very important. That's maybe more valuable to life, like physical life for Socrates. So, um, so I, anyway, I just thought I'll just tie those things together. I think like the, the, the desperation urgency of situation and how that actually isn't just incidental. That's actually central to the theme about personal integrity uh, in this, in this dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the way you pointed that out. And, and actually, it does tie to the opening in that introduction that I read. So initially, Crito says, you're going to die tomorrow because the ship is arriving today and your appointed date of death will be the day after the ship arrives. And Socrates says, no, I saw in a dream it's going to actually be in two days. And that means that since there is that day in between, Crito then has the chance to explain to Socrates that he could escape during that intervening day. If, if the execution had been the next day, then there would be no opportunity to organize this escape. And so, as you say, it's, it's actually, you, you raised a point that I hadn't thought of before, which is this, that the urgency presents this sense of compulsion, maybe, to Crito, and, and he's trying to pass this sense of compulsion on to, to Plato, or to, um, to Socrates, that time is pressing, like, we, we need to act now. So, if, if you act quickly, we can do this. But when we act quickly, we don't have time to think. And Socrates is saying, no, I, I need, I'm sticking to my guns. I'm I'm not going to change my opinion just because there's this urgency on us. But I think you raise a very good point because when there's urgency, and especially when the majority feel a sense of urgency, uh, then they can be moved perhaps to some conclusions that they wouldn't otherwise take if they had time to reflect on it. I think that's a very good point, a very important point, actually. So thank you for that. Yeah. Can I just uh, maybe add a quick footnote to what I yeah. said? <laughs> um, so um, I think um, 
Hang on. Sorry, I lost my thoughts. Sorry. I'll let Dave go. We'll we'll come back to it. Dave, your thoughts. Yeah. If the law is a good law, like I think the the murkiness in this uh, discussion happens because they talk about the opinions of men and whether or not they're good opinions or bad opinions and whether or not laws are good or bad. I think the clearest point that Socrates makes is if it's a good law, then if I've broken a good law, I should be punished. I shouldn't be exempt. That to me is a very clear principle that I think, you know, there's no debate really, you know, you think it's a good law. Like for instance, if you agree, oh, I don't know, not allowing parking in a fire zone, I park in a fire zone, I get a ticket. I really should pay the ticket. I agree with that because it's a good law and I did something wrong. So in in Socrates' argument, if it's a good law that I broke, then I should be put to death. That's a slightly different argument from the the other stuff that he was talking about earlier about some opinions of men and some are good and some are bad. That's a different sort of an argument. And I think that muddies the water a bit. I think it, so there's, it's like two different parts of argument here. Uh, Crito create, create, or Crato is just arguing from a practical point of view. Look, Socrates, forget all this, uh, uh, you know, principled opinion and action. Your kids are going to suffer. All, our, all your friends are going to suffer. So do the practical thing and let us bribe the guards and get you the heck out of Athens and life will be sweet. And uh, Socrates makes the point that if it's a good law and I broke it, I should suffer. I shouldn't exempt myself from good laws. And I think, to me, that is a real truism that, you know, like, uh, it's like these people that uh, turn themselves in, even though they wouldn't have been caught, because they think it's, you know, that they broke a good law, and so therefore they should be punished, they shouldn't have exemptions, just because they're able to escape or avoid punishment. So it's a very principled, I think that is a very principled, clear, good uh, idea that Socrates has. The other stuff about the opinions of men and some are bad, some are good to me, that uh, it doesn't say much to me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I like that uh, presentation or that depiction of Crito as arguing from a practicality standpoint. Uh, and that contrasts quite a lot to what Socrates takes the more philosophical long-term approach uh it's socrates approach is not practical to maintaining his life but that's not what he's concerned about so yeah he's uh, much more he's uh, he's an abstract he takes yeah yeah, he abstracts from the situation to try to come up with a clear principle upon which to act which is not what most people do yeah yeah exactly no and that's good i mean i I think let's see what Socrates thinks about the laws. I mean, you use the term good. Uh, I'm not sure that he's judging the laws at any point here. I think he's, um, and we'll see this maybe in the discussion when he gets into the discussion with the laws, that it's more, I think, about something that he's benefited from. And uh, maybe he's not so concerned about the laws themselves being good, but maybe it's the men who apply the laws. And that's the, the part I mentioned in the introduction that comes out right near the end of the dialogue at 54, around 54C, uh, when he says, uh, just find a sentence, as it is, you depart, if you depart after being wronged, not by us, the laws, but by men. So this was his discussion with the laws. So the laws are saying, we're not the ones who are 
who have delivered this injustice. It's, it's the men who who applied the laws who are doing that. So it's it's an interesting argument, and I really struggled or. That struggle, but really, it made me think what Soc what Socrates means by the laws. You know, is it is it the laws at one particular point in time, or is it the laws in general, the laws that have created the whole constitution of the city from which Socrates has uh, has benefited? So, yeah, I think very good points to to raise. Well, this is very just a quick little note. This is very Platonic to talk about the laws as though they're kind of handed down. Yeah. You know. I mean, this is Plato through and through the idea of ideals, the ideal good, the ideal laws, the ideal guitar. That, that is Plato through Socrates, which, uh, you know, which, well, you can agree or disagree like it or not. I, personally, I find it uh, unreasonable. But anyway, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's a good, you know, laws in the abstract versus laws the, the practical laws, the laws that exist now. Uh, so yeah, I think it's it's a question of time, maybe with the laws that uh, that that's in in play here. So, so thanks for that. And uh, Darren, I think I got my thought together. Um, but just a quick thing about um, <laughs> the laws here. Uh, what you guys were just discussing, I find that's actually a little bit weird, personally, because. Plato doesn't worship the laws as they are. And we saw that when we read the Statesman last year, and like Plato is a bit of a cultural critic. He doesn't take things for granted. So the fact that we were hypothesizing the laws and in and, and a sort of very extreme way, remember, this isn't Socrates speaking. He's just sort of pretending to be the laws as, as if they were a person. And it says some extreme things, like you have to worship and obey, the, like you have to worship the gods and as if, you know, it was the highest thing. I, don't know, I found it was a bit weird. And also, and also like, not what other dialogues seem to say. You know, Plato's always about asking questions about our laws and so on. And also, it also says some things that I just don't think are even maybe true. Like, apparently, the laws are going to accuse Socrates of not trying to persuade them to change. Like, you can either obey or try to persuade. And then, like, but Socrates did seem to try to persuade as far as I, so I was confused about that. And then another question is, okay, so if you try to persuade, but you fail to persuade, so do you still have to obey then? Anyway, I'm just saying that I think there's a lot of weird stuff going on there. So I, I'm not ready to say that, you know, I, I like in so many of these dialogues, what we hear isn't necessarily like Plato's, Plato's view so, per se. So I got my own thought. Sorry, the, coming back to the thought I had was um, that I guess this, is, this relates um, to what Dave said too, which was actually uh, was helpful to what I was thinking about. Um, so I guess I take a more, I think this dialogue personally, I think is actually about a, almost like existential personal thing rather than like a treatise about laws or about anything like very, uh, very theoretical. Like what I said before, I think what's at stake in this very urgent situation is Socrates' own soul, and I think also like Crito's soul, um, which is why Socrates is going to keep reminding Crito. Like they don't even really make arguments here. Like it's just Socrates saying, "Oh, we discussed this and we discussed that. Don't you remember this, Crito? We talked, we talked about this." <laughs> and um, so I feel like, so the urgency for Socrates, if he's not like super concerned about his own physical life, is at least for Crito's life and Crito's soul, because this might be the last time we ever get to talk to his good friend about these issues so there's there's sort of like poignancy there and i think um the issue about integrity so this is the thing i want i wanted to say but i was like 
trying to put my thought together. I think the dialogue is showing what it means to live a philosophical life, um, to like take this kind of life seriously. And like philosophy, like it could just be like a whole bunch of like word games, right? Like that's what like philosophy could be. But Socrates obviously doesn't do that. And I think throughout these dialogues, he, he, he demonstrates what it means to live a philosophical life and take it seriously to the point that even all the things you discussed, if, it, if the conclusion means that and all the things like uh, as we're going to see later, like the laws are going to say Socrates committed to this and they agreed to that. And he said this, his words matter, that even if, you know, in a certain situation, it means that you have to die for it. Well, that's what it means. And so that's how seriously he takes philosophy that when we're when we're using a reason it's about something real it's not just all you know as psychology likes to say today it's all just rationalization there's a post it's ad hoc rationalization like for socrates it's about something real and something objective and and he takes it seriously he's going to honor his own thinking you know it's not just like haphazard like as that quote earlier like, it's not just haphazard whatever we're thinking um I, I guess this applies to what dave says too because like um, you know, the theory about, you know, when we should accede to the laws and all that, like, that's actually all nice in the abstract. Like, I, I could agree with Dave and, you know, that's a nice theory. And, you know, Socrates could lay out this theory too. You know, hypothetically, he could have just laid out the theory. But I feel like there's something just so much more deeper at stake here. Because even if you have the theory, like, I could have this political philosophy about it, but am I actually going to live it? When I am personally actually tested Am I actually going to live according to this theory that I was like, you know, happily in a philosophy meetup meeting on, on a Monday evening, you know, I, I can be like, oh yeah, this is a nice theory. I think it's totally true and objective. But like when push comes to shove, when I am actually tested in my own life, what was that all just, um, as they say, um, play and nonsense? Was that just in, said in vain? Was that just said for the sake of argument? Or is it actually, are we doing something real in these meetups, for instance? So I, I, I just feel like this dialogue is actually, there, there's, there is theoretical stuff, but I think, I think the significance of it is actually uh, on a much more personal existential level. And we see this through the drama that's un unfolding with so between Socrates and Crito. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I like the way that you pointed out that Socrates knows that he's dying in two days. So he's not concerned. The urgency isn't for himself, but I think maybe there is some sense of urgency in Socrates for Crito's soul and for philosophy in general, that it should survive Socrates, so that uh, he should encourage people like Crito not to abandon their philosophical principles for, for what the majority think. And it just occurred to me, actually, as you were speaking, that maybe this is Socrates trying to leave some memory behind about uh, warning the city itself that if it exceeds to the majority, it will make mistakes, such as the mistake that led to Socrates being condemned to death uh, on this trumped-up excuse of having corrupted the youth, uh, and so maybe it's maybe this is Socrates speaking to the future, knowing that he's going, uh, knowing that he won't be around for much longer. He's more concerned about about the survival of Crito, about the survival of philosophy, and about the survival of the city. Uh, so maybe that's uh, some very interesting points that I think uh, come out from what you uh, just said. So, so thanks for that. I'll maybe proceed to the next section here, which is 
this is Socrates and Crito still in discussion. So we haven't got Socrates speaking about the laws yet, but I, I thought I'd do this reading and then we'll get into Socrates' discussion with the laws because I think I think what we're doing here is kind of setting the stage to understand what that discussion is about. And this is uh, from 47a to 48b. And Socrates starts. Uh, Darren, did you want to make a interjection there? Oh yeah, I, I I just thought maybe I could just jump in with a a thought I had before we move on to the next yeah. part. Um, which is yeah. So regarding this issue of concern for Crito's soul, just one aspect I don't think has uh, anyone's brought up yet, uh, which is that okay. So Crito, it's it's an urgent situation. It's desperate. He he he's trying to get Socrates to change his mind. So we can maybe understand some of the harshness and you know some of the arguments uh, that he sort of launches at Socrates. But we also see that in this situation, some of Crito's arguments come back to his, they redound to his reputation. <laughs> and I think this must be kind of disappointing for Socrates because mm -hmm. they've had all these conversations about what really actually matters. And, you know, it's not, you know, what other people think of you. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if they're just, just because they're other people, you know, it matters who it is and so on. But, and he's talking about, you know, well, we're going to get a terrible reputation being cowards and all that if you don't try to escape with us. And I think... Yeah, I think some of some of what's happening here is also Socrates, like, you know, in this in the, in these last moments, this last opportunity to remind Crito that, yeah, what actually matters in life, yeah, and I, and I think this might also have something to do with, as, as we've said, um, James, in in some of our previous discussions about other dialogues, um, the 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 interlocutor might with Socrates is you know in all these dialogues a specific character, but that specific character might stand in for Athens too. Um, and I think this relates to what you were saying earlier, James, too. Um, mm. So here, in this case, it might have something to do with how maybe the idea of a reputation in other people's eyes was a particular important Athenian value or Greek, ancient Greek value, maybe, you know, this idea mm. of honor or whatever. And I think we've seen in many dialogues that we read that, like, you know, Plato and Socrates poke, you know, holes in that and ask, you know, what is this value of this honor? You know, um, shouldn't we know what the good, what is actually good first? And not worry about you know what other people think. We should worry about, you know, we shouldn't think arbitrarily. You know, we shouldn't be totally like subjective in that sense. But we should think, you know, we should um, question what is actually good with our reason. So yeah. Anyway, so I just want to bring this aspect of concern for Crito's soul, and he seems to come back to his concern all the time with his with his reputation all over again. And Socrates must be like, oh no, oh no, this is my last chance to fix to correct this. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's good actually. In advance of this particular section, I like the way that you brought in the idea of honor there. That maybe the city, maybe the opinion of the, of the majority is one that conveys some sort of sense of honor on people, and maybe that's what the majority drive people to do uh, to to do things that they think will lead to honor. If that's what the city values, is honor. And so maybe, again, this is Socrates trying to save the city and Crito and philosophy at the same time. Um, so yeah, let, let's see what uh, goes on here in this section from 47a to 48b. Socrates starts, uh, he's talking to Crito. Uh, One should value the good opinions and not the bad ones. Crito says, yes. Socrates says, the good opinions are those of wise men, the bad ones, those of foolish men. Of course, says Crito. Come then, what if statements such as this? Should a man professionally engaged in physical training pay attention to the praise and blame and opinion of any man, or to those of one man namely, uh, only, namely a doctor or trainer? Crito says, to those of one only. Socrates says, he should therefore fear the blame and welcome the praise of that one man, and not those of the many? 
obviously responds Crato. Socrates adds, he must then act in exercise, eat and drink in the way the one, the trainer, and the one who knows thinks right, not all the others. That is so, says Crato. Very well, says Socrates. And if he disobeys the one, disregards his opinion, and praises while valuing those of the many who have no knowledge, will he not suffer harm? Of course, says Crito. What is that harm, Socrates says? Where does it end? And what part of the man who disobeys does it affect? Crito says, obviously, the harm is to his body, which it ruins. Socrates says, well said. So with other matters, not to enumerate them all, and certainly with actions just and unjust, shameful and beautiful, good and bad, about which we are now deliberating, should we follow the opinion of the many and fear it, or that of the one, if there is one who has knowledge of these things, and before whom we feel, fe we feel fear and shame more than before all the others? If we do not follow his directions, we shall harm and corrupt that part of ourselves that is improved by just actions and destroyed by unjust actions. Or is there nothing in this? I certainly think there is, Socrates, says Crito. Come now, Socrates responds, if we ruin that which is improved by health and corrupted by disease by not following the opinions of those who know, is life worth living for us when that is ruined? And that is the body, is it not? Yes, says Crito. And is life worth living with a body that is corrupted and in bad condition, Socrates asks? In no way, says Crito. And is life worth living for us with that part of us corrupted that unjust action harms and just action benefits? Or do we think that part of us, whatever it is, that is concerned with justice and injustice, is inferior to the body? Not at all, says Crito. Is it more valuable? Much more, answers Crito. Socrates says, we should not then think so much of what the majority will say about us, but what he will say who understands justice and injustice, the one, that is, and the truth itself. So that, in the first place, you were wrong to believe that we should care for the opinion of the many about what is just, beautiful, good, and their opposites. But, someone might say, the many are able to put us to death. Crito says, that too is obvious, Socrates, and someone might well say so. And my admirable friend, Socrates, responds, that argument that we have gone through remains, I think, as before. Examine the following statement in turn as to whether it stays the same or not, that the most important thing is not life, but the good life. It stays the same, responds Crito. And that the good life, the beautiful life, and the just life are the same. Does that still hold or not? It does hold, says Crito. Socrates concludes, as we have agreed so far, we must examine next whether it is just for me to try to get out of here when the Athenians have not acquitted me. If it is seen to be just, we will try to do so. If it is not, we will abandon the idea. As for these questions you raise about money, reputation, and upbringing of children, Crito, those considerations in truth belong to those people who easily put men to death and would bring them to life again if they could, without thinking. I mean the majority of men. I really like that ending sentence there. Uh, and I guess maybe this is a reference to the haphazard nature of the majority, is that they... Maybe Socrates is implying here that the majority of men just sort of play with people's lives in their haphazard way, you know, putting them to condemning them one moment and praising them another moment. I mean, maybe this ties to that haphazard nature. Uh, but also very interesting in this passage, I think, was the reference to it's not a the life that matters, it's the good life that matters. And so maybe this is Socrates' answer to all of the arguments that Crito has given that Socrates isn't concerned about 
his physical life, he's concerned about his good life. And he keeps referring to the part of the self that's harmed by injustice and benefited by justice. And I think that's a reference to the soul, you know, as as you introduced earlier, Darren. So, so Dave, your thoughts. So, uh, he certainly sounds a little holier than thou, you know, uh, the way that's the majority of men, but I, of course, am above that kind of thing. You know, this is Socrates talking. It's, uh, I find he would be an irritating guy, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, <laughs> to, you know, to spend a lot of time with. Um, he, I mean, he's right that uh, if the law is good, then these practical considerations should not determine whether or not you run away or, you know, or you try to uh, try to not have the uh, law affect you, uh, which is what I said basically last time. But uh, that argument, I think, is a good one that Socrates, it's a very clear argument. It's a good law. Everyone agrees it's a good law. You agree it's a good law. So you should not, or you should be obligated to suffer the consequences if you broke a good law. It's a hard to do. And as Socrates suggests, a lot of people would say, well, you know, I just... I just don't want to go to jail and I'll do whatever it takes not to go to jail. I know it's wrong, but that's the way I am. You know, and Socrates is saying that's not good. You know, you're probably gaining your life, but losing your soul. And again, this idea of soul, I guess we have to suspend our disbelief about souls for the sake of this argument, uh, James. I, I guess we should be like uh, Plato and assume there is a soul, <laughs> you know, I, you know, and, and so assuming there is a soul, then Socrates' arguments actually make more sense. Yeah, you know, you know, your soul's for eternity. Uh, jail sentence is only, you know, a year, or in the case of a death, he's only losing what? He's an old guy at this point, probably 60 or something. I think, so, I think he says 70 at the beginning. Okay, 70, yeah. yeah. So he's, you know, he's only got another 10 years. So why, why take a chance on eternity for 10 years? That's a good argument, you know, assuming we have souls, I would say that's a very good argument. But mm -hmm. the other stuff about other men and the majority of men are muddy headed is basically what he's saying. And I'm a clear thinker here. And let's try to be clear about this credo. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's anyway, thanks. No, thank you. And, and yeah, I, I think, uh, well, I mean, I guess he would say the majority of men that uh, convicted him were wrong. Uh, and that seems to be generally agreed maybe at this point. But but yeah, he's certainly concerned about the soul. And, and you're right. I mean, I, Socrates uh, thinks that the soul lasts not, or the motivating force lasts not only for one physical life, but continues to be regenerated. So, you know, and this is presented in, in a number of Plato's other dialogues. And certainly in this dialogue, he talks about what happens in this life, but then in the next life in the underworld, he calls it. That's part of the discussion with the laws as well. You know, he says that the laws of the underworld are brothers of the laws of this physical world. So, yeah, there's clearly this idea of continuity of of life, not just physical life, but life of the soul. Um, and and that's that goes on forever, according to Socrates, I think. so. But that adds another twist. You're saying that the laws of the underworld or the afterlife are similar to these laws, and yet there is a debate, I think, about whether these laws are actually good. I think there's an inherent subtext about the question of, you know, Socrates admits he's benefited from them, but are they all good laws? And uh, 
I guess he's suggesting they are good laws, but then they're misapplied. Well, no, that wouldn't. Yeah. See, this is a, to me, this is a bit murky is, is it the laws are good and the people who are judging him misinterpreting the laws or yeah, this, I find this, the idea that these laws reflect the laws of the afterlife. So that means they must be kind of a universally good laws. And if that is true, then the men have not misjudged Socrates, assuming he broke the law and, and they're condemning him because he broke the law. But he, I guess, so this makes it work. Is he, does he agree he broke the law or does he say he really didn't break the law? And it's just the men are condemning him, but the law, had they followed the law properly, he would not be condemned. Like, what's he saying? Now I'm all confused. Yeah, no, and you, you raised a good point, I think that, and again, I think it goes back maybe to what I said earlier, that maybe he's not talking about the laws at this particular time as being either good or bad or any particular value judgment, but I think he's talking about some sort of laws of all time. Um, that reference to the laws of the underworld, he called them the brothers of the laws in the physical world. So somehow they're related, but they're not necessarily the same. And I don't know, Tom, whether you have a a better translation of that word brothers it's uh it occurs near the end of the dialogue it comes up in one of the readings that we have so maybe we can get to it at that point but uh he, he does say that the laws of the underworld are, are in my translation the the brothers of the the laws in this world so somehow maybe that means to me that what happens in this world has an effect but not necessarily the same effect a related effect in the underworld what happens in one realm affects the other realm and maybe vice versa. Um, so it, it's something that we should explore, uh, but definitely drawing that into question, I think is is helpful. So thanks for that. We'll go to Darren and then Tom. I don't, I don't know if well, Tom wants to go first, if he's going to answer your question or I'm, I'm fine if he wants to go, because I've said a lot already. So we'll take Tom then. Thank you. You know, I think you the question being raised about whether the laws that are condemning Socrates are just or not is a very important point. And I, I think it's pretty clear, at least from the way Socrates looks at it, that he didn't do anything wrong. He is being unjustly condemned to death. And yet, he seems to be taking the position that what's at stake here is something larger than his own errant judgment um, or the, the errant judgment of the polis. Um, I, I think one thing that we want to keep in mind with Athens, you know, with, with Greece in general, I think at this period, is that the polis matters more than any individual citizen. And I think what Socrates might be addressing is that it's, it's at stake that justice itself be affirmed, even ironically, if it's wrong in his particular case. Hmm. That's an interesting way of putting it, that there's something larger at stake, I think is maybe maybe the issue uh, and and maybe the i wonder if the word laws is really the best translation of of this is he really talking more about 
a constitution, like a, a foundational constitution, as opposed to a particular set of laws that exist at that particular point. Uh, you know, there's been this travesty of interpretation of a particular law, but maybe it's his concern is for the constitution as a whole of the city. Uh, so that's a question. Maybe when we when we hear the word laws, we think of rules that govern us at this particular time, but maybe he's thinking more universally about the whole history of Athens and the history of what made it what it was and, and what he was present during its time and enjoyed during its time, uh, that that was part of his bargain with the city. Like, And as you said, I guess the, the city was the most important thing. So one was to make a bargain with the city, one had to adhere to that because if one didn't, then it could cause the collapse of the city. Uh, so, yeah, interesting points. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then we'll go to Darren and then Dave. Yeah, I thought what Tom just said was very helpful. I'm going to try to tie in uh, my own thought with uh, some of the things that were just said here. So on the on the question, Dave's question, whether these are good laws, I think that's a question. <laughs> I, don't, it's not, I, I don't know if it's the one that exercises me the most about this dialogue. I feel like where that section comes up later, I think I think you included some passages later, so we'll, we might get to this. Like what what stood out for me personally was not so much a question of whether the laws were good or not, but again, Socrates' own agreement with them through not just his actions and you know um, throughout his whole life, but things he said and the commitments he's made. It's going to use those words: agreement, commitment, things he said over and over. And to me, that's again, I feel like that's a that's the theme of this dialogue. It's it's something at a much more actually personal level. In fact, like the, the social contract theory almost doesn't like I, I feel like that's not even that interesting for us today because like it seems like the contract that Socrates made is very literal <laughs> given what he said and the commitments he made and the agreements he made. And we don't make these literal commitments with societies we're born into these days today. So I feel like the question, again, like it's not so much about what are good laws, but the fact that it's about Socrates' own relation to um, the laws or the city or the polis. It's showing, I think the dialogue is exhibiting a very, um, a much more practical or um, in terms of like, in the sense of like, it's about his actions and an existential question. Because, you know, even if the laws were good, I mean, you know, you could be like, you could even say in theory that, okay, if the laws are good, then I won't run away and I'll accept the death penalty if this happens to me. But actually, that's still in theory. Like, you still have to make a choice that when you are actually sentenced to death and you are given the uh, chance to escape, will you actually do it? That to me is like, um, I guess, the crux of it. And, okay, yeah, so just, I, I guess I'll, I'll say one more thing and I'll stop. Um, regarding the uh, larger thing at stake that seems to be at stake that might be being hinted at so the thing that tom brought up i have another idea about this is actually just comes back to what james was saying earlier that um maybe uh, socrates has a sense of sort of almost cosmic mission and i would point out that in this dialogue dreams are again <laughs> come onto the scene and he says at the end that this is what the gods want and he's hearing these voices the cory banties or whatever <laughs> so so maybe what is at stake is not so much, oh, Athens and its laws, which, you know, I'm going to point out that 
both Socrates and Plato are cultural, they're critics of Athens too. They're, they're not like, oh, Athens laws, Athens, they're, they're definitely not that. Okay. Let's <laughs> just uh, put it that, put it that way, which is why, you know, and Socrates himself gets corrupt or gets uh, accused of corrupting the youth. Okay. So let's put, let's just, let's just put that to rest. But I think what is largely at stake then might be philosophy itself. If Socrates has this sort of like more relation to the cosmic through dreams, these visions and voices, he says he has in all these dialogues. So what's important then also, what's also important, there's this personal integrity, there's Socrates or there's Crito's soul, but also there's the legacy he's leaving. Like if he runs away, what's this going to leave for philosophy to think about? You know, he's sort of held up as this like, you know, very um, wise and virtuous figure, even his own life, you know, many people thought this. So, and he was, he was heroic in battle and so on, but like, what's it gonna, what kind of legacy is it going to have for philosophy? As, as James says, maybe the point, maybe part of this is about uh, saving philosophy too. So there's, there's all, there's a lot of that's larger at stake than just like, you know, <laughs> then whether these laws are good or whether, what, <laughs> um, or even whether, you know, he should save his physical life. There's these larger issues here in the background, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a good point about the credibility, you know, if Socrates were to escape and to negate all of what he said while he was enjoying the benefits of Athens, which he freely chose to stay in, if he were to escape, then he would call into question, I think, very much his own credibility, but also the credibility of the ideas that he spent his life trying to express, or or at least the, the questions that he was asking people and trying to um, get them to understand, and so that if he, if he were to behave in this selfish matter manner, then uh, he would be, I guess, condoning individuals taking on their own sense of justice and doing what they think is just if they think that they have been wrong. But you know, it, so it might be one thing if Socrates thinks that he was wronged, and it might be clear that Socrates was wrong. But in other individuals' cases, uh, it might not be so clear. And an individual might take a position which, you know, is selfishly motivated, uh, but take justice into his own hands, and that would destroy credibility. So I think Socrates is being a real beacon of credibility, I guess, for the long line of thought that he has spent his life building up. Um, so yeah, an interesting thought there. I yeah. just I just highlight this one section too, you know, that uh, part of this reading, we should not then think so much of what the majority will say about us, but what he will say who understands justice and injustice, the one that is and the truth itself. And so who is who among us is endowed with the ability to understand justice and injustice and truth itself. Uh, it, I don't think, I think he's trying to imply that nobody is, and certainly maybe not the, maybe not the majority necessarily. Um, so sometimes maybe the majority will moderate this, but maybe sometimes the majority will get carried away as, as maybe happened in Socrates trial. So. Um, can I just say one more thing about related to what I was saying yep. earlier? And, and then we'll just, take Dave. Yeah. Yeah. So th- you're, you're, what you were just saying just uh, made me think of this. Um, yeah. So if he runs away, then he, you know, it means like all the things he sort of said and argued for decades of his life is like, you know, all those lessons about virtue and what is actually matters in life, what the philosophical life is. And that's all because basically it seems like it might all be meaningless. And that would make him maybe a sophist, which is <laughs> always the thing that's yeah. like in the background that um, Plato is always working against, you know, whether, you know, this, this contrast that's almost in all the dialogues. And now I see in this one too, 
um, this contrast between sophistry and philosophy. Is philosophy just all sophistry? It could very well, that could be the case. Yeah. But Plato wants to uh, consider that maybe there is something unique about philosophy and what that could be. Because sophists make arguments. Sophists are very good at making arguments. They have logic. Uh, we see in many dialogues between sophists, they have logic. They can be very convincing. But they don't have actual concern or care for the truth. Like, they don't think it matters. Um, and so, like, words then are just sort of like, they're sort of like clouds. They don't matter. You know, you just try to persuade people, get what you want, um, get yourself interest and with words, with persuasion, with rhetoric. And that's it. That's life. That's all there is. So we see this in Protagoras. And I would remind that. Uh, so we read this dialogue a few months ago, Protagoras. And in Protagoras, um, Socrates repeatedly in that dialogue I, I almost like imagined him like grabbing him by his shoulders and shaking Protagoras to be like, but what do you really think? Okay, he, he doesn't actually grab Protagoras, but he does say, he does keep asking Protagoras, like, I don't care about what, you no, know, Protagoras is going to say things like, well, many people argue this, or there is this argument, but like, what does Protagoras personally, you know, Protagoras the great sophist, what does he personally really think? Socrates keeps probing and asking, okay, that's nice. You have all these arguments. You're great at logic. You can tell me what the majority thinks, what these people think, what this historical figure thinks. Um, but what is it you really think, Protagoras, you know, the sophist? And so, yeah, I just want to, yeah. So I, I, I just realized that, yeah, this, this uh, contrast between philosophy and sophistry might also be in the background of this dialogue in that, you know, if he, the question being like, are words just like clouds? They're just nothing. It's just all rhetoric. And there's, that's all, that's all there mm -hmm. is. Yeah, that's rhetoric, a great point. Rhetoric and our self-interest, and that's it. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. Yeah, Socrates certainly wouldn't wouldn't want to be branded a sophist after he uh, departs this life, and he's he wouldn't be wanted. He wouldn't want to be branded a hypocrite either. So, and what you said about just words, I think maybe that speaks maybe to those last that last sentence that Socrates said. You know, as for these questions you raise about money, reputation, and the upbringing of children, Crito, these those considerations in truth belong to those people who easily put men to death and would bring them back to life again if they could without thinking. Maybe he's saying there that these people just value words more than they value values and thoughts. And so, um, yeah, it's an interesting point to bring. So thank you for that. And Dave. Yeah, I find Socrates' uh, criticisms of fellow man uh, kind of muddies the water. I think he's got good arguments or at least a nice, clear, logical analysis. If the social contract is the most important thing, then even if the laws are not that great, but you've entered into the social contract and the contract basically says you must follow the laws, then it's pretty irrelevant whether the laws are good or bad. The social contract is the most important thing. But if that's not the case and the, the goodness of the laws is really what you're striving, you know, what you're debating, then the social contract isn't as important. But I get the sort of the feeling Socrates kind of flips around a bit that in one sense, the social contract, the idea that he's benefited, he's lived in Athens, he could have left, he's benefited from these laws. So that's the social contract kind of thing. But on the other hand, he suggests that the laws may not, you know, he didn't do anything wrong, but the laws have to be followed. So that's a social contract idea. But then he also talks about uh, his fellow man condemning him when they shouldn't have. So did they follow the law? Or did they wrongly apply the law? I'm not sure. Could you answer that for me? Like, did they, was the law actually a good law and that it was misapplied by his dummy fellow citizens? <laughs> the, the way he said, or 
or was the law bad? And, but the main thing is the social contract. What's the answer? I, I'm confused. That's a, it's a good question. If I were to give my answer to that, it would be that the law in general prevented, it said that the youth should not be corrupted. So that was the law. But the men who applied that law misinterpreted it to say that Socrates, through his questioning, corrupted the youth. So if the law that youth should be not corrupted sounds like a good law, I, I would agree with the law like that. Don't corrupt the youth. Uh, but it's a question of then what constitutes corruption, which is for man to determine. And in this case, uh, a, a jury of Athenians decided, uh, you know, under some sort of majority influence that Socrates had uh, had disobeyed that law and what Socrates did constituted corruption. Uh, and I think now they're maybe second guessing it, but it's too late. He's already being condemned. So that's how I would answer that question. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's an example of the difference between the principle of the laws and the actual application of the laws. You know, the the idea of the laws versus the practicality of it, and the practicality is sometimes confused by men. I, I don't know. Well, the, 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 I think the confusion arises by this term "corrupting" or "corruption." Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems to have a pretty broad yeah. definition. You know, and, and Socrates thinks, oh, I wasn't corrupting anyone. I was just uh, trying to clarify their thinking. And but the yeah. his fellow citizens say, yeah, by trying to question things, you were casting aspersions at our yeah. basic ideas here in Athens. Yeah. And casting aspersions is the same as like questioning is the same as corrupting. And uh, Socrates, rightly so, I think, would say, well, no, questioning is not corrupting. But, you know. All through the ages, monks living in abbeys all for, you know, a thousand, two thousand years throughout the Middle Ages and before and after. One of the things that they were not really supposed to question the tracts, the religious tracts that they were studying, they were supposed to accept them. And in fact, in a lot of abbeys, uh, uh, questioning was dealt with by swift blows on the head or the back or whatever using a cane from the abbot. So this whole idea of questioning as a corruption in a religious tone or in a religious setting seems quite common. And, and you know, this, this seems to be what the majority of men dealing with Socrates are thinking, that corruption means questioning. Mm -hmm. And so, again, well, you know, so it's, <laughs> so I don't, you know, I find these, I'll just give you a quick opinion here. I find historical analysis of philosophy. I like modern philosophy because it's more science-based. A lot of the stuff in the past, you get caught up into the terms corruption, sold, da-da-da. You know, I end up not really having a clear picture of, of, of the argument that Socrates is making. I find Plato pretty uh, elusive. Uh, anyway, uh, I guess that's a, I shouldn't really bring that in. We're, we're focusing on this discussion, I suppose. I should just stick with that and say, I'm not sure, you know, I wish Socrates hadn't said the men here, you know, the majority of men are idiots and they don't see things clearly the way I do. I wish he had just stuck with purely the idea of social contract, law, uh, uh, definition of corruption. That would have been a clear argument, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, interesting point. And and certainly a lot does hinge on the meaning of words, which I think is the the beauty, but also the challenge of humanity is that we we all have different senses of meaning. And at different times we have different senses of meaning. And so, you know, maybe when that law was written, corruption meant one particular thing. And then by the time Socrates uh, steps on too many toes and annoys too many people. The word corruption is redefined to mean something else and used uh, as a weapon against Socrates. But I think this is what humanity does through all time. And, you know, I think Plato very rightly points out the importance of meaning. It, it, that was actually what we started the season of the podcast with Plato's Cratylus, which is all about the meaning of words. And I think we discovered in that process that meaning is very fraught with problems. And maybe, maybe this is Maybe this is one of the things that Plato is pointing out here, or Socrates is pointing out here, is the question of meaning. What does the laws mean? You know, and and what does it mean at any one particular time? So I think it's a good point to to raise. A, a word means what I think it means. No more, no less. Yeah, exactly. you know where it's from, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 then it becomes a question of whether the word means what the majority says it means or whether it means somebody who knows what it means and maybe that's again maybe that's again this maybe that's again this part here that i read you know who understands justice and injustice the one that is and the truth itself so well, yeah. yeah but that's not just meanings i think there he's talking about some ideal justice yeah. or injustice it's not just the definition i think corruption like justice and injustice that's a different question from corruption versus not not being corruption to me justice and injustice is a platonic kind of an uh, argument or ideal discussion but i think all we all we all go through every day determining whether somebody has done justice or injustice to us in, in small ways as well as big ways you know i think it's uh, we do it to each other i think all the time and so each one of us is a judge of what's just and unjust and i guess it's a question and we'll see later on where socrates has the discussion with the laws and he he, he says, you know, the laws get upset when one person takes the interpretation into their hands, which is what Socrates is trying to avoid. He's trying to avoid interpreting the laws. He's he's just, he's part of the city and he is part of the fate of the city, I think, so. He is taking the definition of, of uh, corruption. He is one person taking it into his own hands. Yeah. Yeah. So he's being hypocritical. Well, he he hasn't he hasn't defined. I mean, he might have his own ideas. I think about what what he did, uh, but he's accepting this the city's the the, the verdict of the jury. The verdict, well, okay, the, but then he shouldn't yeah. be arguing against it. He should yeah. say, yeah, corruption is what they say it is because of the social contract that I've agreed to. Therefore, they are smart, and I should die. Well, let us see what he says when he starts talking with the laws. We'll we'll get to that section very shortly. In fact, maybe after Darren. So. Darren, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I just thought I'd respond to some of the things that um, <laughs> have been said. Or um, so regarding accepting the outcome of the laws, and Socrates doing this, and outcome of the, I guess the um, execution of the laws. Um, so there, there is a difference though between just accepting the laws such as accepting the outcome of a vote which by the way we have one in toronto today who <laughs> i don't know if we have a new mayor yet we'll, we'll find out soon enough and versus um accepting something as a truth for oneself this is a distinction that's uh, very common in political philosophy so rawls talks about this a lot 
that we can agree to a social system where we have things like votes, but it doesn't mean we give up our, it doesn't mean we give up our conscience to it. It means, it, it means there's different kinds of agreement and there's sort of different levels of agreement. So I, I just was that as that, that, I just want to make that distinction and put that there out there. We got, sorry, excuse me, regarding the uh, definitions of words and all that words like soul and corruption that Dave <laughs> doesn't like. This reminds me of um, our, our discussions in the Cratylus. So which reminds me, I want to go back because this entire, I mean, Plato is also very concerned about words, their meanings. Um, so we see in the sophist, right? He tries to be super careful in defining his terms. And it goes through this long process of division to try to um, be very clear about the meaning of his words. And in the Cratylus, the dialogue on language, a sort of um, imaginary character there was the, um, I think he was called the supervisor, the one who supervises the, <laughs> the definitions of words and creating words. And there's a lot of interesting things that were said there. So, I mean, I, I would recommend people look at that dialogue if you're concerned about what um, Plato thinks of the words. And it, it is certainly, Plato does think that it is very important to get our words very, uh, um, get our words right. But that's also not the task of every dialogue. So if you're, if you want a very specific definition of corruption or soul, maybe this is not exactly the right dialogue to look at. So, and then another thing I wanted to respond to was, um, right. So regarding the in, injustice of the verdict, I think there were also maybe vendettas against Plato or against Socrates. And I also want to point out that I think it was also unjust because I think it should be pointed out that it wasn't, I, I don't think it was just that Socrates was like irritating or annoying to people. That could be a problem, um, but I think it went deeper than that. Um, I think people feel often feel threatened by philosophy. And we see this in many of these dialogues that play the rights that I mean they're dramas for a reason and we see personalities come through and people feel threatened by philosophy we see a lot of characters feel threatened and we in fact we saw this recently so we read the symposium recently and I'm reminded now of Alcibiades that in, in part three of the symposium so um people can you know go to the listen to that discussion if they're curious but um there he says that so he's very drawn to Socrates appeal so he sees Socrates value in fact, he, he seems to love Socrates and everyone laughs at him because his speech seems to evince that, that he's still in love with Socrates. But he also hates Socrates. He says that because Socrates makes him feel terrible about himself. It's not just that Socrates is irritating. Socrates also makes, he says that, uh, also bad, he says that uh, Socrates makes his life feel worthless. It's like it, his life is trying to be to get reputation and honor and become an important uh, public figure and politician. He, you know, he thinks that Socrates makes his whole um, purpose in life or his um, his goals in life uh, worthless. And so that's probably that. I think that's an important another important reason why um, Socrates might have been executed is because not just that he was annoying, but he was a figure that a people looked up to, and so his opinions sort of mattered and. And to the extent they mattered, it made people feel um, like their lives were worthless. All the things they thought were important that they wanted to pursue, um, you know, happiness or uh, power or rep good reputation in other people, other people's eyes. You know, all, all, <laughs> Socrates keeps pointing out that maybe these things aren't as valuable as you think. Yeah. So again, like this, and we I remember it during that discussion, we were saying how Alcibiades is it probably is an analogy for Athens mm -hmm. in general. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll stop it, there. Yeah, and, and certainly, yeah, I guess to the extent that Socrates stepped on the toes of the majority, maybe in in their perceptions, uh, led to all of this. So, yeah, no, it's some good points. So, 
we have just about a half an hour remaining. So I wanted to get into this section where Socrates speaks with the laws. And that starts at, uh, I have this section picked out from 49C to 51A. Again, it's Socrates and Crito start talking, but then Socrates towards the end of this section brings in the laws. He has starts this mock discussion with the laws. So I'll just read this bit. So Socrates starts saying, well, then if one has done harm, is it right, as the majority say, to do harm in return, or is it not? Crito says, it is never right. Socrates says, doing harm to people is no different from wrongdoing. That is true, says Crito. Socrates says, one should never do wrong in return, nor do any man harm, no matter what he may have done to you. And Crito, see that you do not agree to this contrary to your belief. For I know that only a few people hold this view, or will hold it, and there is no common ground between those who hold this view and those who do not, but they inevitably despise each other's views. So then consider very carefully whether we have this view in common, and whether you agree, and let this be the basis of our deliberation, that neither to do wrong nor to return a wrong is ever correct, nor is doing harm in return for harm done. Or do you disagree, and do not share this view as a basis for discussion? I've held it for a long time, and still hold it now, but if you think otherwise, tell me now. If, however, you stick to our former opinion, then listen to the next point. Crito responds, I stick to it and agree with you, so say on. Socrates continues, then I state the next point, or rather I ask you, when one has come to an agreement that is just with someone, should one fulfill it or cheat on it? One should fulfill it, says Crito. See what follows from this. If we leave here without the city's permission, we are harming people whom we should least do harm to. And are we sticking to a just agreement or not? Crito says, I cannot answer your question, Socrates. I do not know. Socrates says, look at it this way. If we were planning to run away from here, or whatever one should call it, the laws and the state came and confronted us and asked, and so this is where the conversation with the law starts. So this is the law speaking, tell me, Socrates, what are you intending to do? Do you not by this action intend to destroy us, the laws, and indeed the whole city, as far as you are concerned? Or do you think it is possible for a city not to be destroyed if the verdicts of its courts have no force, but are nullified and set at naught by private individuals? What should we answer to this and other such arguments? For many things can be said, especially by an orator on behalf of this law we are destroying, which orders that the judgments of the court shall be carried out. Shall we say in answer, the city wronged me and its decision was not right? Shall we say that or what? Crito says, yes, by Zeus, Socrates, that is our answer. Socrates says, then what if the law said, was that the agreement between us, Socrates, or was it to respect the judgments that the city came to? And if we wondered at their words, they would perhaps add, Socrates, do not consider it what we say, but answer, since you are accustomed to proceed by question and answer. Come now, what accusation do you bring against us in the city that you should try to destroy us? Did we not first bring you to birth? And was it not through us that your father married your mother and begat you? Tell you, do you find anything to criticize in those of us who are concerned with marriage? And I would say that I do not criticize them. Or in those of us who are concerned with the nurture of babies and the education that you too received? Were those assigned to that subject not right to instruct your father to educate you in the arts and in physical culture? And I would say that they were right. Very well, they would continue. And after you were born and nurtured and educated, could you, in the first place, deny that you are our offspring and servant, both you and your forefathers? If that is so, do you think that we are on an equal footing as regards the right, and that whatever we do to you, is it is right for you to do to us? You were not on an equal footing with your father as regards the right, nor with your master if you had one, so as to retaliate for everything they did to you, to revile them if they reviled you, or to beat them if they beat you, and with so many other things. 
Do you think that you have this right to retaliation against your country and its laws? So that was an interesting section. Uh, the laws have some sort of precedence in time over, over the individual. And what do we think of that? So this is the first introduction where he's talking to the laws. I thought what was interesting in here is there's a couple of things. First of all, when he when Socrates says, if we were planning to run away from here or whatever one should call it, that was an interesting thing, whatever one should call it. So here being Athens, but he's saying we could call it something else. What, what is the meaning of Athens? Maybe that's that was an interesting section, whatever one should call it here or whatever one should call it. And, you know, this this concern for the destruction of the city and the city meaning maybe more generally the the society that people have agreed to live on in together um, is one one theme definitely in here. Uh, and then the point that he makes that um, I'm just looking for it. Yeah, it, it's it, he says, or do you think it, or do you think it possible for a city not to be destroyed if the verdicts of its courts have no force but are nullified and set at naught by private individuals? And you know, maybe this is something that we see happening sometimes today that a lot of people are unhappy with laws and verdicts and they take matters into their own hands and things become quite contentious i think as a result any thoughts on that i don't like being political in this uh, podcast but it made me think of the insurrection at the u.s capitol or those individuals who thought that they had the right to try to overturn the election. Um, and is that an example, maybe without getting into the specifics of the individuals involved or those who are trying to instigate them, is that an example maybe of individuals taking not the specific laws, but the, the kind of general constitution of the nation, the, the ideas that that allow the nation to govern into their own hands and causing all sorts of chaos and mayhem by doing that. Uh, so I, I just thought that example was maybe a, a recent example of something that maybe Socrates was talking about uh, at that time. Um, so, uh, James, your thought? Uh, yeah, I think he has a good argument there that he's concerned about his soul and his, you could define the soul, um, at least, you know, um, if you're still living, uh, intertangled with uh, with uh, the city and um, and the culture that you raise you to be uh, for you to become what, what you are so yeah he's right there that argument that he's born into this city and that he should respect his laws because those laws were, were what um, you know everything in that culture and city state was what benefited him made him who he is allowed him to be a philosopher uh, and yet on the other hand uh, do you believe that uh, let's say like Nazi Germany you know, where there's this kind of um, taken over by a bunch of madmen, the majority has become, you know, turned into this madness of, uh, of persecution and uh, using the laws, you know, to, um, you know, condemn people and to, to death and so forth. That would also be wrong, wouldn't it? So in that sense, you know, there's a kind of, yeah, it's a difficult question whether but of course, if you think of what the you know what Socrates represented, you know he's he's concerned with his soul. And if you say if you say the soul is part of his philosophical thoughts and beliefs and 
and integrity as a philosopher, then his soul is uh, living on in these dialogues that we're reading. We would have lost that maybe if uh, if he had uh, taken Credo's uh, advice to escape and run away from the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an interesting example there, there that you used of Nazi Germany and that specific laws were were promulgated by those animals, the Nazis, to slaughter so many people. Um, and I don't think Socrates would say that it would be right necessarily to follow those laws, but with the laws that they instituted really laws that went against the, the foundational laws of the nation, you know, and, and to the sense that the nation was not like that before these thugs took it over. And then they convinced the majority because of the circumstances following World War One and the great poverty that Germany felt itself in, that that was used as a basis to uh, rile the majority into putting these beasts into power. And then, you know, the slaughter of so many people ensued as a result. So it's a good example. It's a good example of maybe, yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm glad you raised that. It's it's another recent history example that I think is is quite relevant to um, to the discussion. So so thank you for that. Uh, we'll go to Ernest and Darren and Dave. Um, I, I see what Socrates is saying. Is it doesn't really matter if laws are just or unjust, good or evil, because he was living there for most of the seventy years, and he accepted it, and he didn't uh, discuss it uh, or contravened against these laws. And all of a sudden, this law goes against him, and he will destroy the laws by running away. Because anybody who has a friends or relatives who has money can buy a guard and escape the laws. So it makes laws invalid. No matter what, if you have money, you can uh, trample the laws, and it will destroy the city. And that's what his main objective is. Of course, there's besides that he he wants to preserve his soul. Yes, I agree with that. So it's two points he is trying to make. But most important, then uh, laws are invalid. It's like anarchy. Anybody can break the law and then buy the garden and run away. That's his main point. Yeah. 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 Th that's an interesting point. And, and you called into attention as well that the attempt to by or credo suggesting that Socrates buy his way out of the laws, which may have been particularly offensive to Socrates, to use money as a value that would trump the philosophical value, I guess, is, uh, is something. And, and that's an interesting point, actually, because because of several references to money at the beginning. In fact, when credo entered the cell right at the beginning of the dialogue, he said that he he gave a little something to the guard so, to allow him in. So uh, yeah, there's this exchange of money, which you know, the, we think of money as a value, but it's not a value to the soul. Money is of no use to the soul. It's uh, exactly yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, it points out that rich people will be able to avoid the laws, and yeah. poor people have to abide it. It makes yeah. doesn't make sense exactly. Yeah, it, it, that may, yeah, maybe that's a good example of injustice. Is that there's one one set of laws that the the wealthy can afford, and the rest have to just suffer whatever fate comes their way. So yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to Darren and then Dave. I actually wanted to uh, respond to what JK said about the soul, but just 
quickly regarding what uh, Ernest was just talking about. There's an interesting contrast here between the laws and then the people who execute the laws, which is the majority <laughs> in this case. And I, I, I find it interesting that the it's implicit here that the, the relation between these two can be quite different. So in regards to the law, you know, he's talking to the laws as if they were a person, you know, the, the language is one of um, like commitment and what Socrates did and actually said. Um, and, and I think an important part of this is how, you know, in their, in their sort of imaginary conversation that the law say you had a lot of time to consider and think about these things and to use your reason. And he made a commitment uh, to Athens um, after this process, whereas with the majority, um, the relate like this is when he was talking to Crito. The majority is described as as using their power uh, to frighten us with bogies, as if we were children, with threats of incarceration and executions and confiscation of property and so on. Yeah, so like I just find this interesting how like the relation to the laws seems to be much cooler and happens over maybe a more extended process than with the majority, which uses these tactics, which are as if to treat us as if we were just children, <laughs> you know, with scaring us and all that. So anyway, that I, I don't know what to like, what larger implication um, from that there is. So anyway, <laughs> uh, regarding the soul. Um, yeah, like what JK said about like Socrates soul is living on dollars for reading and in this legacy he left. And I actually think that, so I know like Dave doesn't like the soul talk, but I actually wonder if like this personal aspect of this dialogue would make, would, could even make sense without an idea of the soul. Cause you know, if there was no soul, I don't see like why he doesn't just escape with his physical life. Then he has a few more years of physical life. So if there's no soul, it seems like one should just run away. Like, what is this, all this integrity stuff? Like, who cares? You know, that's, that's all there is. That's your physical body. Like whatever the soul is, it's, it's like the part that has this integrity. Like, I, I, again, I don't know what it is. I, I, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's a part that has this, qual has this quality to it um, and can be corrupted and that integrity can be corrupted. And so, yeah, I feel like some of these like very pers this personal aspects of this dialogue and the personal lessons he's trying to convey to Crito actually seems to make sense if only with this idea of the soul. Otherwise, it's just like, if he was purely materialist, I actually, actually imagine him telling Crito, yeah, Right, like let's get out of here. I'll have a few more physical years to live, and that's it. Who, what does all this integrity bullshit, right? So anyway, I just thought I was thought out there about the soul that I I can't like point to it or tell you what it is, but it's the it's the part that has integrity and has to make these personal choices, and yeah, and maybe has um a freedom to make these choices, or I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's it's hard to say, but there's things sort of pointing at this thing here. Yeah, and I think maybe it's a question of whether the soul. Or the motivating force lasts just for one's physical lifetime, in which case maybe you take steps to preserve that physical lifetime as long as you can to preserve the existence of that soul. So because knowing that when you go, your soul will also go and never be never reappear again. So you want to do the most with your soul while you're living versus maybe the, the platonic Socratic view is that the soul doesn't last just one life. It goes on for a long, long, long time. And so he's not concerned about just what happens in this one life, which is a very short span for the soul. He's concerned about what happens in the next lives. And that will come, I have the, at the next section, right at the end of the dialogue, where he talks about the underworld or, or the next life, which is how they refer to the underworld, I guess, back then. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a good point to read. Like, how long does the soul last? And, and I think we know in Socrates' view, 
that the soul lasts for a very long time indeed, much, much longer than a single lifetime. So, yeah. So Dave. But even without the soul, you know, his argument here, if we don't follow the laws and we don't do what the judges say, then, you know, basically Athens will fall apart. That's a practical consideration. You, regardless of, you know, soul or no soul, what his argument here in the last paragraph is basically saying, if we don't want to destroy Athens, regardless of whether the rules are perfect or good or not so good, maybe they're bad, you know, the thing is, if we don't follow them, Athens will be destroyed. So this is a very practical argument that he's making that he and other people should abide by what the judges or their fellow citizens decide that the laws state if, if I guess he was judged by a jury, mm-hmm. although he talks about the judge. Oh, no, verdict of his courts. Okay, yeah, so that's yeah. court, so it probably was a jury. Right. So he's making a practical case here. To me, this is, this is again, kind of an, you know, I wish that everything was a little clearer, but again, I think this is a strong argument because he's being sort of practical. It doesn't rely on souls and goodness, what's good, what's not good, you know, all this platonic stuff. This is just a very practical look. If we have laws that are not followed, it's anarchy and the city will be destroyed. So I I think this is a strong, I think he makes two strong points. If you agree with the laws and if, if you espouse principles, you should follow them. That's a philosophy. As a philosopher, you you shouldn't just babble away like a sophist. You should believe in what you say and follow what you say. And the second idea is the idea that in order to have a city that works and a society that works, you got to follow the rules and you have to abide by them. Otherwise, it's anarchy. So those are two good points, I think. Uh, The rest of it, good, souls, all the (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Thanks. Yeah, I like the way you made those two points. And I think uh, certainly when he says that, you know, the, the, if one person were to bring the laws into their own hands, then it could destroy all the laws. Like he, he, by doing that, he would give other people, other people license to do that. So I think that's the risk. And then what you said about, you know, being true to your beliefs, I think that's the point that he made to Crito and that uh, when he said, you know, and Crito, see that you do not agree to this contrary to your belief. So he's, he's reminding Crito that one's beliefs uh, have to have some consistency through time or else maybe they're not based on reason. So I think that's, and and maybe, you know, with thinking about the divided line that I mentioned at the beginning in the Republic, belief is a starting point, but then you go from belief to informed opinion and then knowledge and then wisdom. So he's trying to get Crito past that first step, step of belief, I think. So, so thanks. Um, Ernest. I just uh, want to uh, make clear that we know uh, that trial was taking place at, uh, in 399 BC, and there are 500 uh, Greek citizens were at the trial, and uh, there were two charges against him, not only corrupting the youth, but also introducing new gods, I believe that's the charge. And so it's both uh, charges were uh, voted against. And what was 280 against uh, Socrates, 224 Socrates. So on, he only needed 30 more votes to be cleared. So that's how we know this, this is factual numbers. So that's how it was, the case was heard. 
And that's why he accepted the decision of the citizens of uh, Athens. That's great. Thank you for that. It, it, that's very helpful, that, that background. Uh, let me just read just in the few minutes that remain the last section, because this is right at the end of the dialogue, and this is a short section, two paragraphs, really. Uh, this is from 54a to 54c, and this is where the laws are speaking to Socrates. So Socrates isn't speaking at all. The laws are speaking to him. So the laws say, you will spend your time. So if, if Socrates escapes the city, the laws are saying, are saying, you will spend your time ingratiating yourself with all men and be at their beck and call. What will you do in Thessaly but feast as if you had gone to a banquet in Thessaly? As for those conversations of yours about justice and the rest of virtue, where will they be? You say that you want to live for the sake of your children, that you may bring them up and educate them. How so? Will you bring them up and educate them by taking them to Thessaly and making strangers of them, that they may enjoy that too? Or not so, but that they will be brought up and educated here while you are alive, though absent. Yet, yes, your friends will look after them. Will they look after them if you go and live in Thessaly, but not if you go away to the underworld? If those who profess themselves your friends are any good at all, one must assume that they will. Be persuaded by us who have brought you up, Socrates. Do not value either your children or your life or anything else more than goodness, in order that when you arrive in Hades, you may have all this as your defense before the rulers there. If you do this deed, you will not think it better or more just or more pious here, nor will any one of your friends, nor will it be better for you when you arrive yonder. As it is, you depart if you depart after being wronged not by us, the laws, but by men. But if you depart after shamefully returning wrong for wrong and mistreatment for mistreatment, after breaking your agreements and commitments with us, after mistreating those you should mistreat least, yourself, your friends, your country, and us, we shall be angry with you, and while you are still alive. And our brothers, the laws of the underworld, will not receive you kindly, knowing that you tried to destroy us as far as you could. Do not let Crito persuade you, rather than us, to do what he says. So that's right near the end of the dialogue. Do not value either your children or your life or anything else more than goodness. So the, the idea of the good being brought in here right at the end, but the, the, the word good has occurred several times throughout this dialogue. So, you know, the idea of not just having a life, you know, here, here the laws are saying, well, yeah, you could have a life in Thessaly. Maybe you leave your kids behind, maybe, maybe you bring them. Either way, your friends will take care of them if they're really your good friends, like if, if they are any good at all. They say um, so. It, it's this idea of living the good life. The, the good life is not just surviving; it's surviving according to your principles. Maybe is is what the laws are saying here, and then respecting that sort of agreement or bargain that Socrates freely made to remain in that society and to be part of that society. Um, so, I found this was it was a really interesting kind of way that the laws had of presenting themselves here uh that you know these and socrates i think by this point has tried to use this speech with the laws and his own points to counter kind of everything that crito said at the beginning in terms of the arguments that he tried to apply to get socrates to try to save his life so so darren your thoughts on this yeah this is a uh, sort of uh great thoughts to end on um Regarding um, this issue of the good <laughs> and the good life, I think the sort of philosophical life that uh, Plato and Socrates are recommending, I don't think it's obvious, right? And I, I think we see this in so many dialogues. It's not like the obvious. In fact, 
in fact, a very the practical thing to do might often be ve look very different from the the good life that Socrates and Plato are recommending. I think we we see this in dialogues like Gorgias or you know Thrasymachus in the first book of the Republic might be said to be very practical. If has all the power, then you know why is justice not whatever he he just declares it is? <laughs> I mean, if he has ability to do so, and there's a lot of authoritarian and tyrannical figures in the world today who who actually do do that, and it's that's practical for them. So the idea of what's practical, I think, is a uh, is is um depends on your point of view. And regarding what is the good, then. I, I want to come back to this thing that uh, this quote you meant you brought up several times, James, about the one man who knows if there is such a man or something like that. And so you you, you mentioned it might be nobody because like nobody knows the good per se, right? Because it's all it's always like in these dialogues, it's always presented as a journey towards it. But I think um, it it could also be pointing towards at least someone who knows the path. The one man might be just might be Socrates, <laughs> and this uh, this dialogue might so. Um, when he says following that one man, I mean, maybe it's a bit conceited that, you know, he Socrates might be saying, basically saying to follow himself. But, <laughs> but this could also be Plato, this could also be what, you know, Plato is putting to Socrates' words and hinting that, you know, like in other dialogues, we like including a symposium, like follow this model, like uh, mm -hmm. Socrates and what he represents. And maybe not everything about his personality, because we're all different, but, you know, in the, in the ideals he represents. Um, so, and I, I just want to, tie this in with the ending we as you may know James I love talking about the ending of his dialogue so I, I hope I can fit this in I know there's hands up I'll try to make this really quick okay so the ending is kind of bizarre for me so he says at the 54d Crito my dear friend be assured that these are the words I seem to hear as the Cory bands seem to hear the music of their flutes and the echo of these words resounds in me it makes it impossible for me to hear anything else as far as my present beliefs go if you speak in opposition to them you will speak in vain however if you think you can accomplish anything, speak. And Crito says, I have nothing to say. And the last line is, let it let it be then, Crito, and let us act in this way, since this is the way that God is leading us. So I find it very, yeah, interesting. This, like this, these spiritual aspects come in, like dream, like, and, and of course, like the beginning of the dialogue starts with the dream, Socrates' dream about, you know, why he must stay. And he says, he says, very, he says there that he thinks it's clear enough. And, you know, if the dream is if he accepts what the dream says it's basically as, as he does in many other dialogues then it's there's so there's almost like nothing else to say like all the arguments is sort of <laughs> it's like so what is and he even so he, and socrates himself even sort of comes out with the view with this view here where he says um you know he can't hear anything else and you know if he tries to challenge if credo tries to challenge him he's going to be speaking in vain so i find this really interesting um, so I, I, sorry, I'll wrap this up. So I, I'll just, I just want to tie this in with, um, actually this reminded me of something from, um, the ion. So that was about how, you know, um, ion was, he, he's a, he's a raps rap. So he like, he's like, um, possessed by divine, you know, he, he has a divine gift and he doesn't actually have any knowledge. And we were saying how that might actually apply to philosophy. So I, I think it's really interesting here that in this dialogue there, so I feel like, Socrates might be sort of getting a message from the gods and then he's then you know through these dreams and visions um he has and then he's passing this uh kind of the inspiration he gets as we saw in the ion the thing that gets passed on like a chain of magnets is the sort of inspiration the, the way one touches the soul of another person and so he's sort of passing this on to Crito and through these dialogues of course to the rest of us to posterity yeah so I feel like maybe yeah maybe the 
the one man that is coming out is um, about Socrates and his connection with the spiritual and how what he's passing on is this gift of philosophy. And it's actually about, so it, it would be actually about, the Daleks actually about maybe the hope of finding Athens on this other basis because um, then compared to whatever was happening at the time, which is not mm-hmm. good in Athens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And, and yeah, too, that section, I don't, he doesn't say the one man, he says, who understands justice and injustice, the one that is, and the truth itself. And I'm wondering whether that's maybe a reference to the universal soul, because in the philobus, he says the universe itself has a soul, and which I, I see, because if I have a soul, do I have anything more that the universe doesn't have? It's hard for me to, so I I, I think that, but maybe when he says the one, it's more that this connection to the universal soul. So that was just okay. a thought that occurred there. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting point for sure. Uh, and, yeah. and uh, yeah, so, so we're running out of time, unfortunately, but I will, we'll take Tom and Ernest and Dave. And then I think that's all the time that we will have for this episode. It's, it's been really great. And, and certainly, you know, Darren, what you said, it just, I meant to mention, uh, you know, the symposium, where Socrates was, was presented with these kind of unusual supernatural powers. Uh, and so there's clearly some connection, I think, that Plato is trying to make here between Socrates and some higher uh, higher level of existence, I think. So So it will go to Tom, Ernest, and then Dave. Uh, okay. Uh, these are sort of just a couple of random thoughts, but when you mentioned the symposium, it, I was just thinking about how Socrates, at one point here in this dialogue, talks about how silly he would look, comical, if he put on some old cloak and escaped, you know, like some uh, thief in the night. And, and it's almost like it's just not his genre. You know, he, you can't ever imagine Socrates doing that. Um, and yet you could imagine Alcibiades doing that. Um, and so it's interesting that uh, Alcibiades, uh, in his tribute to Socrates, in a sense, is, is the opposite, is the, is the polar opposite of, of Socrates. Um, the, the other thing I just wanted to say is there's a line there at the very end, that, that last passage, where he talks about the good or it's translated in your translation as as the good, but um, in in the Greek it's dikaiu, which just means observant of custom. It's related to the root of dk, which is justice, but it, it's not the good in some capital letter way. And um, I, I I think it's kind of important that we get the feel for the the language that was being used by Plato rather than, you know, expand it to some uh, universal that uh, takes on a life of its own. And then you had asked about the word for brothers, and um, indeed it is uh, Adelphos, which is brother. Uh, So there's a whole genealogy or a a family metaphor, uh, particularly towards the end where the laws themselves say, Ah, Socrates, I, I'm reading my translation here. Uh, be guided by us who tended your infancy. And the word tended there is the word for nurturing, as if the laws were, in a sense, the mother. So uh, the, the suggestion may be that 
when the laws tend your infancy, it is the infancy of you, if you want to call it your soul, as opposed to just your literal body. That's great. Yeah, that, that's a really powerful statement that you made, the, the family metaphor. I hadn't thought about that, but that comes out through this entire section, you know, the, the birth, the marriage, the the nurturing, uh, the brothers. Yeah, it's that's really powerful. And and thank you for that translation of Dekayu, which does seem to mean something a little bit less maybe than the universal good. You know, I'm thinking of the Republic, the form of the good is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knowers. So maybe that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, it's more like a civic good, maybe something like that. Yeah. Duty. Yeah. Duty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, thank you. I think that's important. And this is, this is the problem. I, I have adopted the Hackett translation as the standard for this series, but uh, it's key to note that there are different ways of seeing things. So, so that's great. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to Ernest and then we'll wrap it up with Dave. Uh, we have to remember a political situation in 399 BC uh, because uh, it's very uh, different uh, than we experience now. Uh, in 403, there was a dictatorship of uh, 30 uh, oligarchs. And uh, some of them were former students of Socrates. And even so, they did not follow Socrates' philosophy, but people in Greece, because they knew they were former students, they blamed Socrates for their performance because they killed more than 1,500 uh, Athenians during their dictatorship. So they blamed Socrates for that, even so he was against the uh, oligarchs. So he knew they retaliated against him. It, it wasn't, uh, they didn't have clear uh, minds. They had the impression that he uh, corrupted the youth and that's and so he knew it was not correct judgment but what most important about this uh, uh, Cato uh, document is that he didn't want to retaliate he didn't want to pay back that's message and so when we were talking uh, two weeks ago with Darren uh, because they executed him he became like a mortar and became more famous he became more famous because he didn't want to retaliate. It's a, that's my personal opinion. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, thank you. And that that's a really good use of that understanding of the retaliation and the context of uh, Socrates' students. I guess blaming the teacher. <laughs> don't blame the teacher. So uh, yes, and don't retaliate. And 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 imagine what would have happened if Socrates had fled jail. Would we be? sitting here today talking about Socrates and his wisdom. Yeah, I think that would be a very different discussion. So, uh, yeah. So thank you for that. And Dave, take us into a conclusion. Well, I was going to just say one thing, Ernest, that's really interesting information. That So I didn't know that, that some of his students were... Uh, yes. Uh, there are they started an insurrection kind of thing. So uh, they were they they formed a dictatorship. They killed a bunch of people, and then they were students of Socrates. Is that right, Ernest? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so no wonder. So there's also Alcibiades, who be who was uh, Socrates' student in a way. They're extremely close, and then Alcibiades ends up betraying Athens. He he turns over to Sparta's side. So that wow. that was also very bad. Yeah. So I can understand the citizens of Athens <laughs> not being too pleased with Socrates. 
he wasn't only questioning, he was also creating these uh, youth who were rebelling and killing and all the rest of it. So that casts a different, a different light on this whole discussion. My only point at the end here that I was going to say before Ernest mentioned this, uh, you know, the fact that these students uh, using Socrates as their teacher, this is what they did. I can understand people being pretty mad at Socrates. Anyway, what I, you know, Socrates has a, you know, it's an interesting, he, he uses practical arguments as well. Like he's saying, you know, I won't look good if I run off to Thessaly and, uh, you know, then everyone will look bad. That's kind of a practical consideration. I mean, if he was really just worried about his soul and doing the right thing, why does he need to bring in, you know, my kids uh, will look down on me. I mean, people will look down on me because I'll have gone to Thessaly and I'll be like a guy who went there for a feast and my kids will, you know, will look down on me and everyone will look down on me. To me, that's a, like, that's a, you know, I think it would be much clearer if he, the main focus of his argument was, look, it's a simple argument. I have to do what's right for my soul because that's eternal and I got to do the good thing or I got to do the right thing. And the right thing is to, well, to follow, to follow good laws. And regardless of whether I think that the, well, you know, well, actually now I'm confused. I'm confusing myself because he's saying that the law shouldn't have applied to him. So where does that leave me? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, James. I, I was going to have the last word, and my last word is it's kind of a lot of uh, well, uh, vague uh, muddiness in this whole discussion. Well, you know, and that's that's not abnormal for Plato to end that way and, and leave the rest of us that way. So I think I think you you perfectly demonstrated uh, what Plato tried to do was to leave us in aporia and wondering. <laughs> as to Sorry. no that's that's perfectly fine it's perfectly fine i think that that's great actually that we end that way and and understand that there's many different ways maybe of seeing what he's talking about but maybe at the end of the day it's about having strength of conviction and arriving at those convictions through a process of knowledge and thinking again about that divided line of of knowledge from the republic and once you've reached that stage you can't revert and you can't you can't do things that um that disturb that what you've achieved and so i think that's maybe what he's trying to say and, and clearly there's somebody here who has strength of his conviction and i think that's maybe uh, maybe he's trying to build a society of people who have similar strengths of conviction and and leave that as his legacy uh to avoid further you know kind of mob rule situations that led to his own conviction perhaps and 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 others, you know, as as Ernest told us, you know, fifteen hundred people died because of the the thirty tyrants who ran Athens for a while. So maybe it's maybe it's to avoid situations like that, not just in little cities like Athens, but maybe in big modern nations too. So um, yeah, so I think there's lots that we can get from this, and I, I think it's really interesting to end kind of at Socrates' ending uh, as well, and and. You know, see where we can pick it up next season in Plato's Pod. We'll we'll take a, a break for the summer and resume our group discussions in the fall. I, I will start with Timaeus in the fall. I, I want to do that again. We started Plato's Pod in season one a few years back. 
with the Timaeus, and I have discovered a lot more in the in the process of doing these, I don't know, 40 episodes or so. Uh, and I'd like to get back to the Timaeus and, and start with that. And then I keep promising that we'll get to the laws, the, the dialogue, the laws, uh, which I haven't read myself. So uh, that's my summer task to read that. And uh, we'll see if we can tackle that next season as well. But in the meantime, I do want to hold some discussions over the summer. I've met some interesting people. And I think what we can do is maybe talk about the connections of Plato's philosophy and some of the things that Plato says to things that are happening in the modern world today, particularly with technology. And the first discussion I wanted to have was uh, relating what Plato says about writing in the Phaedrus to the new technology chat GPT. And so we'll have that discussion shortly. So stay tuned for that announcement. Uh, so I want to thank everybody for being here today and uh, for a great discussion, because as always, we learn new things coming out. And certainly there's a number of really interesting things that were said, uh, angles that I, ha I hadn't thought about before. And so I think I've, I've taken away a fair bit from this episode. And so I'll be really interested to re-listen to it when I get it posted in a few weeks. And I wanted to thank everybody for being online. And uh, we hope that you return for season four of Plato's Pod in the fall. And uh, in the meantime, I will end the recording and uh, invite anybody who wishes to stay online for a casual half hour unrecorded discussion. Uh, you're more than welcome to. And otherwise, I shall wish everybody a great summer. So thank you. Welcome. Yes, thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's been fun. So.